Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. So that's just, first of all, I can, well, I can begin my show that way just about every day because it makes you really feel like you're going to go, go, go. Uh, however, it's a somewhat misleading song because we're talking about ticks today and we like the fact that they kept saying tick, tick, boom. Uh, when I say we're talking about ticks, we will begin uh, uh, we will begin with the ticks themselves, with their bodies, their life cycles, the bad things that they can do to us um, with somebody who has a very unusual relationship. I would say unique relationship with ticks. Uh, we'll tell you all about that. Uh, in the second segment, we're going to talk to Holly Graff. Uh, she is working right now on, she's a professor professor of biological sciences at Old Dominion University, where they're working on, not just working on, they have a, a what they call a tick rover. It's a robot that can go into a, an area and at least kind of create a swath, a tickless, <laughs> a tickless swath. Um, and we'll tell you all about that, too. And then at the end, because I think there's no conversation about ticks that's complete without a conversation about tweezers, because after all, if the tick gets on you, you have to get it off you. Uh, so we will have a talk about tweezers, including we will tell you about a collection of tweezers from ancient Egypt, where they also had ticks, as it turns out. But uh, our superstar here, uh, we're so excited to have him, uh, is Rick Ostfeld, a distinguished senior science scientist at the Cary Institute of uh, Ecosystem Studies, uh, and sometimes referred to as a tick guy. Although, Rick, you say that's not really correct, right? You started out as a mammal guy. Uh, it just turns out that ticks spend their entire lives thinking, when's a mammal going to come on so I can jump, come along so I can jump on it? Yeah, well, thank you for having me on the show. Yes, um, I would like to think that I have more value in the world uh, besides just being a meal for ticks. But yes, I am both a mammal and trained as a mammal biologist. But um, the ticks just appeared to me in a vision and, and also in real life. And so I've spent a fair bit of time over the past 30 plus years studying them too. Yeah. I don't know if you consider yourself an acarologist. I believe that is the study of ticks and mites. Um, but, um, well, do you consider yourself an acarologist? Well, I would be careful. I think real acarologists or medical entomologists might not consider me one of them. Yeah. So, no, I'll stick with my ecologist and mammal biologist moniker here. All right. Well, most of us are thinking about ticks from the point of view of mammals anyway. And every year, it seems, I read an article that says ticks are on the rise. This could be the worst year ever for ticks. And those articles are not entirely wrong, right? We are in the middle of a trend or maybe several trends that are favorable to ticks and therefore not entirely favorable towards us. 
That is correct. Yes, there are. And I think you're right. There are multiple trends, uh, each representing a different tick species or a different disease that is caused by a pathogen that's transmitted by one of those ticks. And in general, indeed, things are getting worse, but they do bounce around from year to year. The trend is for more disease, more abundant ticks, more widespread ticks. So it's not a rosy picture. No, uh, except from the point of view of various lesions that they cause. Um, so, um, so some of this is climate, right? I mean, whatever the life cycle was of a tick here in the Northeast, uh, it's it's different now. There isn't going to be a real, real hard, ferocious winter that's going to put them down. Instead, there are going to be these temperate conditions, which I assume extends their ability to do what they do. That's right. And, and there's a lot of research looking at um, the degree to which climate change is responsible for this spread in the increase in the geographic range as well as increases in the population density or the abundance of the ticks where they already occur, and exactly how does that happen. And we have a long ways to go on that. It's not particularly well-funded research, unfortunately. I think it should be by our federal agencies. Um, But one of the things we do know now is that as climate change causes an increase in the length of the warm season, so spring comes earlier and winter comes later, Uh, And that is an important mechanism that fosters tick populations and tick spread because the longer they have in the season to look for a host, um, the better they do, the the more likely they are to survive and reproduce. And that's great for them and not so good for us. I mean, another thing that's happened, well, first of all, I mean, what's implied there too, I think, as the regions become a little bit different in terms of temperature, there are ticks that maybe only you know, would flourish in, say, Texas or somewhere like that, who now can migrate a bit north uh, and do pretty well. But we are also, you know, the planet is shrinking in a way. People come and go all the time. People bring their dogs on trips. Uh, livestock gets shipped in and out of here from various countries. I mean, there's a way in which the the, the just global nature of existence means that you're not just going to get the ticks that were would have been sitting out of, out here in, in 1812, right? You're going to get ticks from all over the place. That's right. Well, you know, there, there are several tick species that, that act um, like um, invasive species. Uh, some of those are not your typical invasive species because they're natives, like the black-legged tick, the, the creature that transmits Lyme disease, babesiosis, anaplasmosis, and other the pathogens that cause those diseases. That's a native species, but they are expanding their range in part because of climate change. Then we have here in New England, in the Northeast, we have uh, species that are native to Eastern North America, like the Lone Star Tick, but they're moving up into our area uh, in part, again, because of climate change. And then we have non-native species like the Longhorn Tick, which is a fairly recent arrival which is native to um, Eastern Asia, that is now widespread in the eastern half of the United States um, and could become a problem when it comes to tick-borne illness, although currently there's no evidence that it has yet. Is, is part of the problem that, you know, I mean, obviously when livestock comes in here or when people bring, bring their pets on planes, I mean, ideally, we might have a pretty rigorous inspection program there, uh, check them for ticks. Uh, I'm guessing there just isn't the the bandwidth to, to do that with so much coming and going of, 
of people and things? Well, it, it, it is a very important concern, not just for ticks, but for many different non-native species that cause enormous economic damage, uh, health damage, and, and other kinds of problems um, to ecosystems and, and people uh, anywhere. Mm. Um, but in, in, the, in, the, in the locations where those exotic species um, occur, in many cases, like with this um, longhorn tick, we don't even know how they got here. It could easily have been from livestock, but we have no evidence that that was the case. So we don't even have the basic information in some cases for how they arrived so that we could pinpoint what the weak link is in the chain and focus on preventing further uh, introductions. So I want to talk a little bit about just how we encounter ticks, too. And this is going to come up with Holly Gaff in the next segment, too. But, I mean, for example, um, I have a big uh, dog, and he and I go for walks every day. And we go for a walk pretty much every morning on a place where there's some tall grass near the trail. There's a lot of things that ticks would like. Um, And when I get home, I take off my pants and my socks, and I put them in the dryer. (laughs) I run the dryer for 10 or 20 minutes, uh, and I check myself pretty carefully. And the truth is, I haven't seen a tick since the springtime. Uh, and as I say, I'm, I'm walking around with this dopey dog. Uh, and it does seem as though ticks kind of, I don't know, it's like they group or cluster in certain areas. It's not like they're evenly spread across the environment. Is anything kind of known about that? Yes, a lot is known. And what's known is uh, will confirm your impression. So they do cluster. Um, they cluster in space, but one of the things that many people are unaware of is that they cluster in time as well. So there are three distinct stages in the life cycle of these ticks that we're talking about in general, um, and specifically the black-legged tick, which is by far the most medically important one. And those three stages have different seasons when they appear, and often th- they can peak and then decline over about a month, maybe two months. Um, So in the spring, May, June, and early July around here is when you see the nymphs, the most dangerous stage, very tiny, but many of them are infected with the pathogens that can make us very sick. But then they decline, and right now we're in the phase, phase two, which is the larval stage, the even tinier, the tiniest stage in the life cycle of the tick. They will start to decline soon in our area, and then It'll, there'll be a lull until about October, November, early December when the adults come out. They're the big ones. So there are seasons where there aren't many ticks out there, not because they're dead, but because they're between stages, they're digesting a blood meal, or they're just hunkered down in the leaf litter biding their time. So let's talk about them biding their time, too. A tick, I, I didn't realize this until we were getting ready for the show. I mean, you think of insects as being, I don't know, like... I see fruit flies in the kitchen. I think, oh, they're just, you know, they're going to die in about an hour anyway. Um, Ticks live for two years. Is that correct? Yes. The black-legged tick generally lives for two years. Uh, Very long life uh, longevity for such a tiny creature. Highly unusual. And uh, But of those two years, they don't really spend a lot of time eating, as you so appetizingly say, blood meals. (laughs) No, that's right. I mean, one, one thing to realize is that they only eat one thing, and that's blood, the blood of a vertebrate animal, usually mammals, sometimes birds, occasionally a reptile. Um, so they're, they only eat one thing. Uh, and one might say they drink, but um, I won't you know, split hairs here. I'll let them split the hairs. Right. But 
Um, but they spend probably more than 95% of their lives doing pretty much nothing um, on the forest floor, under the leaf litter, or even in small pores in the surface of the soil, digesting a blood meal or being in a state of suspended animation. A little bit of time actually looking for a host, which means climbing up on some low vegetation or maybe even staying on the ground. Um, and then only a couple of weeks over that two-year life cycle do they spend actually attached to a host drinking their blood. So, I mean, that's sort of good news, and and or maybe not. But um, another thing about this, I had this idea for a long time that that ticks were like these little jumping spiders that they could just spring off the ground and grab onto my ankle or something like that, uh, and that they were these very sort of acrobatic little animals. That also appears not to be the case. No, there are no acrobats. They are wimpy as can be. Uh, the black-legged tick in particular is a very weak crawler. I mean, it would be lucky to crawl across um, the size of someone's kitchen over a period of a few days. They just don't move very far on their own uh, and they move slowly. So what they rely on some animal host to approach them very closely and they can make the final you know, couple of feet if they detect an animal nearby based on carbon dioxide, which they're blowing off as they breathe, or based on infrared, which they're emitting um, because they have a warm body. Um, but they don't jump, they don't hop, they don't fly, they don't fall out of trees. Um, and I think people have gotten a misimpression because sometimes the, the place where they find a tick on their bodies is somewhere on the upper half or, or, or maybe even the upper bit of their body, behind their ears, the back of the neck, their armpits, something like that. And they think, well, that tick must have dropped out of a tree on me to get up that high, but that's actually not the case. Um, almost always we encounter ticks at a very low level, like ankle level, um, maybe up to the knee, depending on the life stage of the tick. And then they, but they, what they do is they then crawl upwards looking for that perfect place in which to sink in their mouth parts and start to feed. And they need to feed on you for a couple of days in order to fully engorge and have a successful blood meal, letting them survive that experience so they can molt into the next stage. So that's why we find them up high is because they're crawling up, but they're encountering us very low. Right. And by the way, that whole thing about how long they need to feed, I think people conflate that a little bit with how long it might take them to infect us. And, and that's kind of all over the map, right? The, the new scary thing is the, is the Powassan virus, which, as I understand it, a tick can give you in about 15 minutes of, of making a blood. That's meal. right. Yes. Yeah. They, they need several days to feed in order to fully engorge so they can make it to the next stage. During that period of time, they are capable of transmitting any pathogens that happen to occur inside their bodies. And you're right that with Powassan virus, which is a, a very rare but very um, concerning, um, very virulent uh, pathogen, that can be transmitted from a feeding tick within 15 minutes or so after it starts biting. At the other extreme, though, is the bacterium that causes Lyme disease and that takes at least a day or even day and a half to two days following the initial bite of the tick before it can leave the tick and enter our bodies. So, by, by the way, everybody who's listening to this right now is now having these imaginary little crawling sensations on their bodies and strange little itches. And that's just your imagination because you're listening to a show about ticks. Ticks aren't not 
probably not on you right now. Um, so um, if they do this to me, uh, it's a problem. I, I do have a, um, a dose of doxycycline in my bedroom drawer because I've been bitten by ticks so many times. If they do it to you, the joke's on them, right? If they do it to Rick Ostfeld, uh, they've got a big surprise coming. Explain that. Yeah, well, they only have they have only their own brethren to blame for this. So I was like you know any other normal person um, early in my career when I got bitten by a tick, um, I would have to find the tick, I would have to remove the tick, and I guess you're going to talk about that a little later on in the show. Um, but I had so many tick bites early in my career, um, both in New York State, where I do most of my research, but also helping my wife and colleague, Felicia Keezing, with her research in Kenya, so many tick bites that I have developed an anti-tick immune response so that now when I get a tick bite, I kill the tick before it can feed for very long, before it even engorges on my blood very much at all. So I can be woken up in the middle of the night by one of these tiny single larval ticks, this itty bitty thing is biting me. And I have such a strong burning sensation that it wakes me up from a sound sleep. And I go into the bathroom, turn on the light, and there's a red welt uh, and with a tiny little black dot in the middle. And that's a dead tick. I remove it and I won't spill the beans on how to remove it. Um, and uh, I do my best to see if I can uh, resuscitate the tick. You blow on it. That usually gets tick moving. Um, <laughs> You're the only person who's ever done that. But anyway, go ahead. It's not quite mouth to mouth, but I guess it's close. Um, and but it doesn't work because the tick's dead. So no. I am my immune system has been taught by virtue of prior experience to react very strongly to proteins, antigens in the saliva of these ticks to the point where I kill any tick that's trying to bite me. And that um, developed over a period of years and multiple dozens of tick bites. So right now um, I'm well protected. I've never had a tick-borne illness despite that many tick bites in the past. Which raises the question, why are you not selling pints of your blood on eBay? Um, I want to be in the Rick Ostfeld business. I think we can make a lot of money. Um, but uh, but that's your business. I don't business. think it's a sustainable yeah. business approach. But <laughs> well, well, I'll decide whether it's sustainable or not. <laughs> Maybe um, for the consumer, not for the donor. Right. Um, so actually, you can spill the beans just because you have a lot of experience uh, about this. Yeah, we're going to be talking to some tweezer experts, but you've removed a lot of ticks uh, and lived to tell the tale, although the ticks now don't live to tell the tale. So I don't know. Do you have a a particular preferred technique? You might as well tell us. Well, I mean, I have, um, we call them, because we're science nerds, we call them fine tip forceps, but um, you can call them tweezers if yeah. you like. Um, I have pairs all over the place. I have them in my office. I have them in every bathroom at home. Um, and so it's nice to have, and we use them out in the field because yeah. we're looking at ticks on things like mice and chipmunks and on pieces of cloth that we drag on the forest floor to census the ticks, determine how many there are. So, you know, you can get pretty good with it. You, um, If they're fine tipped enough, you grab the tick as close to the skin as possible and just pull straight out. Yeah. Um, I'm not ever all that worried if I don't get every little bit, if uh, there might be a, a little fragment of tick mouth part left in my skin, that's not such a huge problem. You want to avoid that if you can, but 
you just want to get the tick out as quickly as possible and fine tip forceps or tweezers, if you will, are really good for that. Yeah. And you don't want to squeeze the body of the tick. So you're squeezing. What, what is it that is transmitting? We didn't really do a lot of tick morphology here, but what's transmitting pathogens to us? Is it tick saliva? Is it what, what gets into us that was inside the tick? Well, so in the case of the Lyme disease bacterium, the, the bacteria sit around in the tick's digestive tract, which is called the midgut. So it's sitting right in the middle of the tick, um, hanging around. And then as soon as those bacteria detect that the tick is now uh, consuming some blood, so blood is flowing from the mouth parts into the midgut, um, these bacteria mobilize quickly. They actually burrow through the lining of the midgut and get into the tick's circulatory system. And then they move toward the mouth parts and get into the salivary glands. And then, yes, they come from the tick's salivary glands into our bodies. And all that process from the midgut through into the circulatory system uh, and into the uh, salivary glands and then out of the tick and into the host takes about a day and a half, two days. That's why it takes so long. There are other pathogens that sit in the salivary glands and they're capable of moving into the, the, the human host or other host much more quickly than that. So that's what we're getting is, is the tick actually um, salivates a little bit into our, uh, into our skin, into the side of the bite. And accompanying that saliva are those pathogens that can make us sick. So we should say that once you wrote about this, about your your seemingly unique position in the tick world, it turns out it wasn't entirely unique. You heard from other people who have similar immunities. Uh, and I guess we would call them mithridatic immunities. And so, I don't know, you guys can form a club and you can meet in the tall grass where nobody else is going. Um, but I'm, I'm also wondering, um, obviously, you're not an immunologist. But uh, here, the, these, you know, people are more worried about ticks than ever. And yes, uh, some of these new diseases that we're hearing about that come from ticks, it's not just Lyme disease anymore. It's Powassan, it's babesiosis. Um, I mean, there must be a great interest in some kind of all-purpose vaccine. What, what do you hear about that anyway in, in the tick world? There is a lot of interest in an anti-tick vaccine. There was a vaccine against Lyme disease. It was available uh, in the early late 90s through early aughts. Um, it no longer is available, but there's another one in late stage clinical trials. So we'll probably soon have another Lyme disease vaccine. But as you point out, that that is specific to Lyme disease and won't protect you against any of these other tick-borne pathogens. And given that so many others exist and are on the rise, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had one vaccine that prevented ticks from feeding on us long enough to transmit anything and actually killed the tick. Um, so there has been a lot of interest in this. Um, it's a matter, and you're right, I'm not an immunologist and I won't speak out of turn, but I do understand that uh, determining exactly what protein or combination of proteins should be used as the vaccine, as the trigger for our immune response so that it is effective in killing the tick but doesn't result in some sort of reaction against our own tissue, so autoimmunity, that seems like it's a tricky business. And so it's often, I think, more challenging to develop a vaccine based on a particular protein or set of proteins than, for instance, a, a virus 
or um, uh, or a particular gene sequence from a, a, a from a virus. So I think there are obstacles to developing both a safe and effective vaccine. Um, but there are labs both on both sides of the Atlantic, as far as I understand, that are working on it. All right, we have to stop there. You're, you've been a great guest, and we're very excited. I think maybe the next big public radio pledge campaign, we could at least have one pint of your frozen blood and maybe <laughs> give it to the highest donor. So if you get a call from someone named, named Lee Newton, either take it or, or don't take it if you don't want to have to part with your blood. Um, all right, so we're going to thank you very much, uh, and we're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back, and we're going to talk about the robot that may be coming to save us from the tips. I'd like to walk you through the Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. It is time to talk about robots, uh, and it's time to talk about robots uh, with Holly Gaff, uh, professor of biological sciences at Old Dominion University. Um, and so, uh, Holly, we've just been having a big conversation with Rick about ticks and all the reasons we don't really want them in our lives, unless we are Rick, who doesn't have to worry about them as much. Uh, but what can you do about this? Well, it turns out uh, you folks have been working on something that, that really might help at least create a tick-free swath here and there. So tell us about the Tick Rover. Sure. Thanks for having me on to, to talk about my favorite, I guess, uh, Tick project in many ways. Um, so we lovingly call it the Tick Bot. Um, the Tick Bot, Tick Rover, either name, um, is a, a semi-automatic uh, remote-controlled vehicle that you can drive through an area and drag a cloth behind it that's been treated with a, a chemical called permethrin. And it's a neurotoxin ticks, and any tick that touches it will then be dead. And so kind of uh, flips the idea, as you said, of not necessarily trying to remove ticks from the earth, but trying to create a safe area. Then you could go outside and 
um, be brave and not have to worry quite as much about tick populations and ticks biting you. And we should say, permethrin, if you ever buy the, the kind of spray, often comes in a big yellow bottle with black letters on it, that you spray on your clothing to tick-proof it and proof it against other kinds of things that might try to jump on you as you walk around, that's got permethrin in it. This isn't some weird you know, biological agent that was developed on Plum Island or something, right? Correct. Yeah, no, we are. We are. Yeah, we literally go to, you know, the feed and seed store. You can buy the, the chemical there. It's been used on, on horses. You can use it on dogs. You do not want to use it on cats. Follow label instructions, like you said. Put on your clothes. We put it in our car mats in our car. So when we're traveling for sites, we don't have to worry about ticks in the vehicle. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a commercially available. It's impregnated in a lot of military clothing and a lot of uh, park rangers as well. So it's been it's been used for a long time, and, and this just is a very targeted uh, approach of, of trying to attract ticks to a, a moving little remote-controlled car that um, can then drive around the area and, and help clean it up. Right. And so, yes, uh, I was going to just come to that, which is the Tick Rover, which is what I've decided to call it. Uh, the Tick Rover, it isn't like a car that you would get into and drive. This is more something that I assume you operate. It's a smaller thing operated presumably by some kind of remote control. So the original implementation that that the this was designed by some uh, engineers at Virginia Military Institute, um, they they designed it to follow a guide wire. So you could you could uh, bury it, look like a like an invisible fencing kind of guide wire, and then the 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 tick by the rover would have the ability to sense that and and follow that along um, as one option. Um, we found it to be a little bit uh, cumbersome, and you know then you were fixed to a certain area. So it, we have a more flexible version now where it truly is like driving a remote control car because that's what it is. You buy a remote control car, you modify it a little bit, tag this little uh, cloth behind it, and then um, go out and, and drive it around until you can make a much safer area for yourself. So, you know, I was asking Rick about this earlier, um, and I think this is very much conforms with your experience. Ticks seem to congregate in certain areas. It isn't just the topography. It isn't just where the tall grass is. There are just some places that have a lot of ticks. And I know uh, in Virginia, you had um, uh, at least one sort of nature preserve or green space that had become essentially unusable by school children because there were so many ticks there. Tell us about that and, and what was done about it. Yeah, so there's a the, there's some of the cities around here don't have as much green space as others. And, and one of the beautiful green spaces we had um, is a place called Hoffler Creek Wildlife Preserve. And um, it, as they were creating the space and, and building out the, the wildlife areas, it had a, it had an unbelievable number of Lone Star ticks. So this is the tick that, that, that Rick had mentioned as well that we have down here in the southeast and is moving your direction. I apologize for that. <laughs> um, but uh, we've had it for a long time. And it, it is notorious for not just being like within Hoffler Creek, being higher than necessarily places around, but also even within that along a single transect, we, we jokingly call them like a portal to another dimension. When you find these places where you can collect, you know, thousands of, of nymphs or adults in a given location. Um, and generally for us, you can trace it back to the previous life stage. So if you think about a white-tailed deer and the white-tailed deer down here can, can easily have thousands of lone stars on them at a time and they sleep in a certain spot, the ticks are likely to fall off there. And then a year later, even if there's nothing around, all of those ticks will then be emerging in that single spot. So it's, it's all the way down to the hot spots of we're talking meter level, as well as like a park like Hoffler that ended up with 
way too many ticks for children to be safe or anyone to be safe. And the park will have to be closed sometimes just because of the tick population. So there we go. Great place to try this out. If any place is going to work, if it works there, it would work anywhere was kind of my philosophy. So we tried it out and sure enough, we could clear a trail to the point that we could literally sit on the ground and have a picnic. Um, um, so, yeah, I mean, and we should say that, I mean, it's part of the ingenuity of this is because the permethrin's in the cloth. It's not like you're dumping a lot of chemicals into the environment or anything. It's a cloth that's being dry, dragged across there. That's where the, the chemical is. Very quickly, I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the painstaking nature of the early research that you had to do in this. In other words, you had to sort of figure out, well, does it really eliminate a lot of ticks? And this apparently involved, and this is something I bet even Rick Ostfeld hasn't done, <laughs> Painting ticks with nail polish. Tell us about this. Yeah, this is a, it's always amazing. You don't realize the skills that you need students to have in your lab. And I guess the first one for this project was was their ability to run video games and drive these cars way better than I do. But the second one definitely was uh, the ability to paint tiny things. And so um, we we discovered that you could mark ticks. Uh, there's been marks that ticks have been marked for a long time, but we we are on the cheap here. Like Rick said, we don't get a lot of funding in ticks, so we went with the fingernail polish approach and used some very fine pins and can literally mark ticks with uh, fingernail polish and then um, put them back. So we'd go out one day and pay, pick up all the ticks we can get. And um, Lone Star ticks are a lot more mobile than black-legged ticks that we mentioned earlier. Um, but we would pick them up, uh, flagging, uh, paint them, put them back where we found them, and then come back a day later so give them a little time to recover. And then we would try areas to recollect them after we would run the tick bot or not run the tick bot. So it gave us a way to truly say, not just that there were no ticks there, because it's easy to kill when there's nothing there, but give us a percent recover. And um, the, the results of that were that in the areas where we ran the tick bot, we, would, we have never recovered a painted tick. And in the areas where we do not run it or run it with a sham cloth or other controls, we would usually get about 20% of them back with their pretty little colors. <laughs> All right. So there are a lot of people who are listening to this and thinking, Holly Gaff, make a million tick rovers, kill all the ticks in the world. And some of the people saying that aren't people, they're moose. Um, but um, <laughs> yes. moose really have it bad with ticks. They do, but they but do. that's not really your position, right? Ticks are part of an ecosystem, whether we like it or not. So say a little bit about what your philosophy is there. Yeah, and I I think anytime I'm always nervous to to mess with any piece of the ecosystem. It's certainly out of whack when we have the numbers we have now. But uh, ticks have a role, and I, I mean maybe it's philosophical to think that you know they 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 have a role in our society in, in ecology. But they certainly are a prey species for a lot of other other um, creatures out there. So salamanders and birds. Birds. The mental image I usually explain to my anybody that will listen is. Um, you think about a, an, a, an oxpecker on the back of a, of a buffalo in Africa, and it's eating the ectoparasites, not just ticks, but other ectoparasites. And so essentially, it's like eating the, the buffalo or the elephant or whatever large creature one bite at a time. And there's no way that those creatures could actually bite an elephant and, and, or catch an elephant. But the, the tick provides a way of being a little protein bar laying there on the ground for what other creature wants to come along and, and consume it. So... How much that plays a role in predator prey cycling and everything else, I don't know that I'm all that willing to go out and wipe out part of a part of an ecosystem. It's a very expansive view, and I'm not sure every elephant would agree with your philosophy. But, uh, but <laughs> Holly, Holly Gaff, thank you so much for joining us. I do, we do want to say 
The Hollygaff uh, Tick Rover is not available at uh, Ace Hardware stores or anywhere else at the moment. Do not tie up the phone lines at Old Dominion University trying to get one of them as soon as they're available, Willie. I- ideally, you can you'll be able to buy one with let's say a half a pint of Rick Osfeld's frozen blood along with it. It'd be kind of like a little package thing. It'd be a package deal. Uh, Yeah, we haven't worked that out with Amazon yet, though. Uh, But they're not available yet. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for the work you're doing. I think it's really going to help us a lot. We're going to take a little break. We're going to talk about tweezers, one of my favorite topics after this. And the technical producer of today's show, guest technically producing, is the Jedi Master, Gene Amatruda. The producer of this episode is McCusker. Uh, and a special thanks to uh, Hong Kong action movie star and science journalist Alan Yu, who's the person who told us about Rick Ostfeld. Uh, we never would have known about that otherwise. So here we go. Uh, I should just say on a personal level. <laughs> okay. I, I I did used to host a radio show on a different station, and we had... Um, a game show called Win Those Tweezers. Uh, and the t- type of tweezers that we would give away as a prize were called, they're a brand called Uncle Bill's Tweezers. Uh, I think they're Uncle Bill's Silver Grippers or something. Uh, and we could have the person's, the winner's name would be engraved on the tweezers. So this is a subject very close to my heart. But it turns out it's been close to many people's hearts uh, in many different ways. Uh, and we are going to talk now uh, to two different people who come at it from two different Ends of the the timeline, really. Uh, Jen Wegner is associate curator of the Egyptian section of the Penn Museum. Uh, Bimur Ural uh, is the executive director of Beauty, Health, and Sustainability Lab at Good Housekeeping Institute. Uh, And so, um, Jen, I'm going to start with you. Uh, This is a pretty remarkable thing that there's, uh, I think, um, first of all, we should say there were ticks in ancient Egypt, Egypt. Uh, to date, uh, I think 52 different species have been identified in Egypt now, uh, but we see our, from archaeological evidence of a mummified dog dating, dating back to the Roman period of ancient Egypt that there was a significant infestation of the brown dog tick. That's not That doesn't mean necessarily that that's what they were using the tweezers you have for, but it all could just fit together really nicely. So tell us about the collection that you have of ancient Egyptian tweezers. Yeah, well, so uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so the Penn Museum, um, we have about 50,000 objects in our collection from ancient Egypt. Um, and of those 50,000 objects, we've got about 52 pairs of ancient Egyptian tweezers. Um, and those range in age from about 2000 BC um, to about 380. Um, and that's what we we have as far as our tweezer collection. Um, and what the ancient Egyptians were using them for, uh, probably mostly cosmetics. Um, we don't know for sure whether they were using them to remove ticks or not, but it's possible. <laughs> well, Cleopatra was definitely using them for cosmetics, but uh, but we don't know what everybody else was doing. So just in case I'm, I ever go into a time warp and I'm transported to ancient Egypt and I, I do notice a tick on my arm and I say, uh, by the head of Anubis, uh, there's a tick on my arm. Tentamun, pass me the... And how do I say uh, tweezers in ancient Egyptian? Well, there's two different words for tweezer in ancient Egyptian. Uh, so there's your very common kind of tweezer, which is uh, a chait, 
Um, and then your more specific kind of tweezer, if you wanted to maybe pluck your eyebrows, is a chayit yiret, which is a tweezer for the eye or a tweezer of the eye. And and before we we're going to sort of uh, sort of talk interchangeably to to you and and our other guests here, but before we go to her, um, what are these tweezers made out of? Are they all made out of the same thing? We should say these are probably from around 1900 BC through the Roman era. Uh, I don't know if they're all made of the same uh, metal. Or tell us about that. Yeah, most of the examples that we have in our collection are are made of bronze. Um, a couple of the more recent ones are actually made of iron. I think we have maybe three examples from the Roman period that are made of, of iron. But most of the ones we have from ancient Egypt are, are made of bronze. All right. So um, let's uh, add to the conversation. As I said before, uh, Birunur Oral, Executive Director of Beauty, Health and Sustainability Lab at Good Housekeeping Institute, where they studied various tweezers. I, I don't think, uh, uh, Birunur, that any of the ancient Egyptian tweezers uh, won your contest or your, your, your rating <laughs> system. Uh, tell, us, tell us, first of all, what you did and, and how you looked at tweezers. Yeah, so uh, we cover a bunch of uh, cosmetics um, products in, in our realm. And this tweezer study goes a few years back, not as 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 old as the 2000 uh, BC uh, type of uh, time frame. But uh, we basically uh, tested them for um, cosmetic use and hair removal. We gathered 32, 33 brands at the time. And we send it to 12 uh, women each who pluck their eyebrows with this first. And based on that uh, consumer questionnaire, we eliminated uh, 20 out of that list. And the top 13 were uh, tested by a, um, uh, an esthetician or, or eyebrow technician who came to our labs in New York City and plucked the eyebrows of consumers uh, or panelists that came through the lab. So and yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, you continue. Go ahead. I was going to say, in terms of uh, materials used, I was uh, very interested to find out that you know, obviously they used um, bronze and iron, perhaps. And at the time, uh, I don't think they had stainless steel. Pretty much everything we tested uh, was made out of stainless steel. Yeah, and so I, I think a difference. Well, first of all, Jen, let's just go back to you for a second. Um, I didn't really ask you. I don't think about the shape of the tweezers, and and it really is true that uh, for for Cleopatra's purposes, if she's removing hairs, she might like the the kind of tweezers that where the ends are a little bit kind of flattened or squared off or however we might want to call it. Although if she's trying to pull ticks off of herself uh, or a dog, she might like the ones that kind of come to a point. Uh, so Jen, tell us about the, the ancient Egyptian tweezers in terms of shape. Yeah, and most of the ancient Egyptian tweezers that we have, um, they're they're all sort of formed in sort of a, a, a bent fashion. So it's one piece of metal that has been shaped in sort of a, a U, so it's been curved. Um, it's not two pieces of metal that have been fused together. Um, so if you think a lot of our modern tweezers um, are, are made more in, in that way. But when you get beyond sort of just the curved into a U shape, when you think about the ends, um, ancient Egyptian tweezers can have sort of a variety of different shapes that the ends take. So some of them have sort of a more blunt tip. Some of them have a more pointed tip. Some of them look, excuse me, more like a spatula 
um, at the end. Yes. So we can probably assume that those are being used for different functions. Um, some might be used for more cosmetic purposes. Others might be used for different sort of medicinal purposes or surgical um, uses. Others might be used for, for crafts or for, for some kind of tools and jewelry making or, or things like that. So they may not have all been used by um, people in sort of a, a medical or beauty kind of applications. Right. The more we talk about it, the more I feel like they shouldn't even all have the same name. You know, the stuff that you pull, something you pull the tick off with and this thing that Cleopatra pulls out a little tiny hair, they 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 just have a different name because they're really not even doing the same stuff. But but Birnur, uh, it, it, as you studied them, there was sort of a big winner. And and actually, it sounds like the big winner, If I, I think I know this particular type of tweezer. Uh, and I think it sounds a lot like what Jen is talking about. I think uh, tweezer, tweezer Man, I think you're going to tell us uh, about them. But I think that they do make it out of a single piece of metal that's kind of bent around. But, but I don't um. want to tell you your business. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I want to first start with the uh, the points uh, that we were talking about yeah. in our test. Really, uh, what rose to the top were slanted mm -hmm. uh, type of tweezers. They were kind of best for uh, eyebrow plaquing in general. And uh, women, uh, you know, our testers and our experts uh, pointed out that if they were flat, uh, kind of rectangular at the tip, uh, you know, chances are you were going to grab onto the skin and pinch someone's skin. So slanted uh, tweezers in our test rose to the top. Uh, but we also had pointed tweezers, as well as a combination of pointy and uh, slanted that also rose to the top. But yeah, as a brand, uh, the tweezer man, which is a cult favorite brand, uh, rose to the top. It was the, the best among uh, our consumer panel as well as um, by our expert uh, who plucked yeah. uh, testers' eyebrows. And Tweezerman, they make different shapes and different kind, kinds of points or ends to their tweezers. They, they do, they do. And uh, I want to point out, well, pun intended in this case, you know, <laughs> I talked to uh, my uh, daughter who has a, a bachelor's in entomology and works for the USDA, uh, uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture, who has you know, similar issues to both, uh, I guess, Rick and uh, Holly uh, in terms of tick uh, protection. And I was asking, picking her brains, what kind of tweezers they use. And she did mention things like the kind of things I think, you know, those kind of forky type of things that they remove yes. ticks from um, uh, the body, as well as she mentioned like these kind of hockey puck type of tips, uh, as well as point pointy. So I would say that in our test, the pointy test, pointy uh, tip winner was a cricket brand. So if you are going to invest in one, go check out our review at um, goodhousekeeping.com and you will find which exact pointy tweezer to purchase and use at home. Right. And I will just say that, um, yeah, there are other kinds of things that you can use. I don't think the Egyptians had these, but they the forky kind of thing that you just mentioned, yeah, there is a thing that sort of has a V shape to it. Uh, and so you're basically sort of sliding it over the, the body of the tick so that the, the narrowest part of the V starts to grab the tick and you can either pull or twist, which we don't recommend twisting uh, a tick because that's how you break the head off or you want the tick to come out uh, whole. But there are some people who really like this. Unsurprisingly, Reddit, 
which is sort of the you know the hieroglyphics uh, of the 21st century. Uh, they have lots of debates about uh, tick removers, and there are people who like this thing called the tick twister. Uh, I would just say from the bottom of my heart, I don't usually you know share my my own personal views about these things, but I have a great fondness for Uncle Bill's tweezers. They used to be made not too far from where I'm sitting. I used to know them. The man he's now uh, passed, but his name was Ellen Harp, who founded the company, and they are that single piece of metal, the single piece of metal that's just bent. Although. Um, we we should also say, uh, Birnur, that uh, I think Tweezerman will actually sharpen your tweezers for you, right? You can just like send them exactly. Back they, yeah, they do come with a lifetime warranty. One thing to uh, you know when you're taking care of your tweezers is you you shouldn't drop them at all possible because that will kind of misalign the uh, the tips or how where the surfaces meet, and they would be hard to repair. So. Even if a brand has a return policy, uh, if you send them back and it looks like you've dropped it, they can figure it out and they will not be able to fix it. So uh, just, you know, but regular wear and tear that also, um, you know, will kind of uh uh, uh, misalign them over time, but that could be fixed by right. sharpening. So, uh, so it's a precision instrument. Take care of it. Um, the Uncle Bill's has a little holder you can put it in that helps. So, Jen Wagner, we're almost out of time, but I think people are already booking uh, train tickets and, and, and planes to get to the Penn Museum so they can see these Egyptian tweezers. We should say all 52 of them are typically not out for everybody to look at, correct? That is correct. <laughs> yeah, we usually only have a few on display. Um, most of the time people come to the museum to see our, our more spectacular objects, our statues of gods and goddesses and some of our pharaohs and things like that rather than our tweezers. <laughs> I deeply resent the suggestion that tweezers are not a spectacular object, but uh, but I'll let it pass this one time because we have to go. But thanks very much to Jen Wegner uh, from the Egyptian section of the Penn Museum uh, and to Birnur Aral, Executive Director of uh, Beauty, Health and Sustainability Lab at Good Housekeeping. We're all about good housekeeping here. It's time for us to uh, get out a dust rag and say goodbye to you. Watch out for those ticks. Check yourself for ticks. <laughs>